got you know, it's funny. That was the first time I had my own room. You know, I was at Yale last year. I, I, I mean, really, like, had a, had a room, I locked the door, you know. I lived in the living room, didn't have a door to lock, you know. That was Leland Stang, a Yale sophomore majoring in philosophy. He grew up in North Tulsa, Oklahoma, home to most of Tulsa's working class, including his mother, a former librarian and school teacher who retired early for medical reasons. Growing up, my room situation was always changing. For a time, my mom's sister and I shared a bed. In later years, I had to share a room with my mom. At one point, we didn't even have a room. God, like having those three glorious meals, you know, I thought the dining hall food was so, you know, it was, it was God, those meals are incredible for what you get. It's just, you know, these are things that people just, they complain about every day, they take for granted, you know, and sometimes I slip into that and I have to always remind myself. But to be fully fed all the time was something, I, you know, I never, I, I remember coming home my freshman year uh, and, and God, I, I felt so healthy. I felt the healthiest I've ever been in my life. Likewise, coming to Yale made me feel more healthy. Honestly, more alive. But it wasn't just because of the food. All that Yale had to offer gave me an instant high my first year. Yet, what struck me even more was the legitimate wealth all around me. I grew up poor, but somehow, I never realized how poor I was until I got to Yale. People here have been hesitant to talk openly about poverty. Here's Yale University President Peter Salve during his first freshman address as president. I believe that talking about socioeconomic status is one of the last taboos among Yale students. When the issue of money comes up, students are often profoundly uncomfortable. Maybe folks just don't know how to talk about it. Well, we're not going to get anywhere if we don't try. So let's talk about it right now. On this episode of Undergraduate Admissions, Mahir Rahman talks about poverty. He tells us what it's like to be a poor kid at a rich school. He takes us on a journey tackling financial aid and the question of what it's like when you have so little to lose and everything to gain. And he won't do it alone. You'll hear three other voices sharing their stories and what they see around them at Yale. These are the questions they want to ask. What's it like to think about every dollar you have when no one else has to? How do you keep up with friends jetting off to Cancun when you're on a budget? Should you have to live a different life just because you're poor? And should you even have to ask these questions? This is episode four, The Two Percent. Hey guys, I just wanted to get some things on the table right now. So you know where I'm coming from. Both my parents emigrated with my older sister from Bangladesh before I was born in Queens, New York. They divorced after he moved to Atlantic City, New Jersey, when I was young, but lived close enough so I could walk over to my dad's on the weekends if I wanted. My dad was a cook, and my mom dealt poker at the Trump Taj Mahal for most of my childhood. My dad took on mortgages he couldn't pay back during the housing bubble. My dad now works with parking enforcement in Atlantic City, and my mom has an hourly wage lower than mine, working for a small insurance company. My unemployed sister and mom live together, with her making almost 20000 a year. My dad provides for my stepmom and four half-siblings, making around 27000 a year. I'm financially independent from my parents, so I'm not a burden for either of them. Fortunately, I got into Yale through QuestBridge, which runs a college application program for low-income high school students hoping to go to an elite school, one of their 38 college partners. Students get matched to a school and receive a full financial aid package, a full ride. For me, that was Yale. It was a similar case for the other three voices you'll hear in this episode. Now that you know that, let's talk about the poor student life at Yale. Here's Leland, our sophomore. It was December 1st when I 
when I opened that application or opened the the email and I saw that uh, you know you're matched with Yale, you have a you know full ride, and 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 God, I, that moment, I just I thought everything is going to be okay. Let me help you understand just how much financial aid Yale provides if you were a student here. Let's talk estimated costs first. There's tuition at $51,400, room and board at $15,500, and personal expenses like books, travel, and medicine at about $3,600. Yale's estimate totals to $70,500 a year. Now, Yale also has an expected family contribution, or EFC, based on your parents' income and assets, your family size and number of siblings in college, and your own expected income and assets, if you have any. The estimated costs less the EFC make up your demonstrated financial need. Okay, let's say you're a poor American like me. After filling out the government's FAFSA, the College Board's CSS financial aid profile, Yale's biographical questionnaire, and submitting both your parents' tax returns, as well as your own, and hell, you add a note explaining just how poor your family is, Yale decides, hey, you'll receive a full ride, with the caveat of an EFC of about $3,000 a year as your expected student income. Yale will use its own funds and grants from the federal government if you qualify to pay for your need, which ends up at $67,500 a year. Multiply that by four years, and you have more than a quarter million dollar college education courtesy of Yale and the federal government. I'll let Leland explain just how this feels. You know, I felt my life kind of completely be destroyed and what I knew it was. It was totally just made fragile at the lowest level it could be. And suddenly, it was every opportunity was at my fingertips. Just so we don't forget, Yale does expect you to also contribute to your education, even if you're poor. The school calls this the student effort. It includes the student income Yale expects you to make over the school year. Again, the EFC of $3,000. And it also includes a student income contribution, or SIC, that the school expects you to pay after the summer, regardless of your choice to work. The SIC, which was also around $3,000 last year, is not included in Yale's estimated cost of attendance, and, in turn, not factored into its financial aid package. For several students on campus, it has been difficult to pay the SIC without interfering with their primary role as a student. Here's Yale senior, Abdul Razak Zachariah. There are kids here who, because they have to work, and then they have to do homework, and then, like, they're trying to do clubs because that's some stuff we have to have on our resumes and stuff that we like to do so we have a soul, um... That takes up a lot of time in a way that like the students who don't have to work don't need to worry about. Abdul majors in sociology and hails from a working class and immigrant neighborhood in West Haven, Connecticut. His mom immigrated from Ghana, takes care of his little sister, and works as a school bus driver. That is to say, the people who have no jobs or stuff on campus, like they also like keep themselves up late and work really hard and don't get a lot of sleep. But when those groups of people try to like I don't know, say that the students who are working here are complaining too much. That's the toughest thing for me because they are, they're doing another thing at the school that some people don't have to do. Um, a, a whole other thing. And that's, that's, um, something that I've recognized as a class issue here, especially in my freshman year where I couldn't even like get a job and wasn't even taught how to get one. The New York Times reported on a study that found around 69% of Yale students come from the top 20% of the income ladder while about 2% come from the bottom 20%. 2%. With only around 5,500 Yale undergrads, my middle school graduating class was larger than that 2%. Several students argue that the SIC creates an unreasonable financial burden for the poorest students. 
Early this March, students rallied outside the university president's office in the center of campus. The administration, how many students care about the elimination of the contribution? And I think we all do. Obviously, we all do. <laughs> Remember, we're pretending that you're a poor American attending Yale, part of the 2%. You're also expected to have health insurance with coverage in Connecticut, or pay for Yale's, which is about $2,000 a year. Add that to the SIC and you now have to pay about $5,000 a year, pressuring you to meet Yale's $6,000 student effort to avoid debt. But, to be fair, there have been some changes to financial aid for the 2%. Now, they're only expected to pay about $1,700 for the SIC compared to $2,600 for their peers, so the total remaining cost for the poorest students would only be about $3,700 a year, if you add Yale's health insurance. Also, outside scholarships can be used to offset that remaining cost. Now, I didn't receive any outside scholarships to help out with this financial burden, but at least I had parents who provided me all the documents I needed to receive financial aid. Things get complicated when you don't have a typical home. That was the case for Yale junior and English major, Sarah Pearl Hurd. She moved around a lot with her mother and half-siblings before they were placed into a group home in Greenville, North Carolina. She went through foster care before she aged out. I'm an independent student. Um, uh, it's actually with FAFSA, it's pretty easy because they have just a tech mark that's like, were you or have you ever been in foster care past this age? And you say yes. And then it's like, did you age out? And then you say yes. And then um, you're good there. Um, and you're an independent student. And sometimes the first few times the university was really annoying with the, what is that thing? I don't have to do it anymore. But that, um, you know, they do those extra like CSS all that mess. I was like, guys, I can't do this. <laughs> like, I was like, I can't do this. They were like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, it always depends on which person you get. But um, finally I found someone and they were like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that we keep asking you to do this. <laughs> like, obviously you can't fill out all this information about your family. I was like, uh, no, I can't. The financial aid office tries to be proactive about accommodating such complicated financial backgrounds. Yet sometimes it's necessary for students to meet in person with them to make everything clear. This is especially true for independent students like Sarah Pearl. Who is independent at like 18? Like almost no one. You know what I mean? Like almost no one doesn't call home, doesn't, you know, even if they can't call home for money, it's just like kind of figuring that out. Like I have friends, like again, I said like most of my friends are poor. One of one of them sends back a lot of money and stuff. Um, you know, I've been in positions where I probably should have done that, um, but haven't. And uh it's been really hard, and I feel like racked with guilt over that. Following the recession, I started high school. I also started working. My dad was in debt. My mom was losing hours. With more siblings on the way, I plan to be financially independent early on. For the past few years, my parents' incomes have been stable. But damn, I felt like a terrible son as a Yale freshman. I made enough to get by, but definitely not enough to help them out. Fortunately, I didn't have to take out a loan. Unfortunately, Sarah Pearl did. Yeah, I took I took out loans when I was taking um I was taking like really hard writing classes and um just didn't have time to write. I was like I need to do well in these classes and I it was fine, but I actually and it's not that much debt. I think I had like I have less than like five thousand, which is not bad. Um, but you know it it is um it was a, it was kind of a shitty feeling. These days, a lot of elite schools advertise themselves as affordable. With programs like Questbridge and schools reforming their financial aid programs, affordability seems believable. Coming to Yale, I thought I could save up to invest in my future, the way I was advised. But 
Those personal expenses Yale budgeted for never factored in the college social life. I've tried a lot to just be public about um, my low-income status, but I have struggled with just, I don't know, saving for myself and not trying to present as someone who is like Yale income, which is something that I like think about. Like Yale income is not so much like a class level, but like a way of presenting yourself. Abdul signs air quotes every time he says Yale income. You know, if someone's really good at going to Goodwill and they're able to get all the stuff that Yale people wear at Goodwill, then they're at Yale income because they found a way to do that. For me, I have not found that. So if I like have to buy like a, the clearance suit or something like that or whatever that I feel like like a Yale thing to look like I'm on, on par with everyone else, then I'll do that to be at the Yale income once again in air quotes. I think I learned why people sometimes label class as socioeconomic status when I got here. It's one thing not to have money. It's another thing not to have the culture that somehow comes easier with money. Honestly, it's not just about the materials that people wealthier than me have. It's about how they naturally behave and act and speak differently. I could definitely see the class divide from like the first day of classes um, in the way that people spoke in classrooms. I took a childhood writing seminar and to talk about like childhood from my perspective kind of felt like I was missing the goal because I wasn't being academic or intellectual about it. I was just talking from like my own perspective. Look, my perspective is shaped by my experience, just the way yours is shaped by yours. So many other students somehow come here with an understanding of just how to be a Yaley in ways that Abdul and I did not. I feel like I'm saying the dumbed down version of what everyone else wants to say. Or I feel like I'm going to say something that if we had like a formal debate, people are going to think I'm saying less words or people are going to think I'm saying less important things. But that's not really what I'm feeling. I feel like I'm just trying to get at a point at the point in a way that seems more um, relatable. And so I felt class through this kind of currency of words instead of actual currency. The class divide exists outside the classroom, too. Here's Sarah Pearl our junior. Even within the black community, this feeling that like somehow racial and cultural isolation is the same as the isolation that comes from poverty. Like I remember being at a BSA meeting. BSA stands for the Black Student Alliance at Yale, a student-run political action and community organization. I was like, I honestly feel really, I feel really out of place here because I don't, I feel like I don't have the words that you guys have when you're talking about oppression and different things like that. Um, but I, I do know that I have the experience with this because I'm from <laughs> the freaking South. Um, I know that I have these experiences, um, even though, you know, definitely, I, you know, benefit from um, being light skinned because of colorism and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, I know I have these experiences, but I can't talk about them the same way that you do. And like, I feel like that is directly tied to class. Like, I feel like when I see you guys talking about this, most of you guys are from prep schools, most of you guys are from the West Coast or... Um, you know, like none of you guys are from where I'm from and I, I can sense that. And then she probably related it to being the only black person out of prep school and how she wasn't black enough for people and like because she didn't come from the hood. And I'm like, I guess I understand your want to feel close to what's defined as culturally black. But I also don't understand as someone who used to live in a hood, like, why like it's so weird because i feel like if people just talked about these things plainly you'd be like how could you ever think that was something that was be like decent to say why is it so hard to acknowledge poverty 
know, we can't go up and down the racial hierarchy. We can't, you know, wake up not black. Um, but in theory, we can tell ourselves we can wake up not poor someday. And I think that, like, um, our community has clung to that so much. And when I hear other um, rich black students talk about it, like, I've heard some people say crazy shit to me, like, oh, I get it because my parents were poor. Um, or, like, I have family members that still are. And you hear that a lot. And, like, I think it's because they, again, are seeing it as, like, they don't hear themselves. Like, if a white person said it to you, it's like, I get it because, you know, my brother-in-law is black. Like, you'd be like, you'd give them the biggest side eye. Like, you'd be like, what are you talking about? But for some reason, they don't hear themselves say that. And I think it's because um, this is what we've been told is our way to climb the ladder, to um, transcend, to provide a voice to our communities. Um And I feel like that's just so condescending because we've always been talking about this. On this campus, I've had pretty open discussions about race, gender, and sexuality. Yet, I've really only discussed poverty with my other poor friends. The campus has become much more aware of racial diversity, and I think, uh, which is good, and it's very more hyper-conscious about issues. But there still seems to be a lot of difficulty in talking about students with high financial need. It's it's almost a, people are... Maybe not frightened, but there just seems to be no conception of what it means to to take value in the world in a different way, to consider every dollar to mean something. As Leland said, every dollar counts. The moment I stop thinking that is the moment I start falling behind. Even though I have so little, it means so much. This happened to me. Like I was like, my shoes right there. Got these from Spring Salvage last year, so they're free. But they, I need new ones. <laughs> they have a lot of holes. Um, but uh, I was like, yeah, man, I need, like, new shoes. Like, I was like, I've had these since high school. And then my friend, who was, like, you know, middle class-ish, like, rich, kind of, was like, yeah, I've had these since high school, too. And I was like, okay, by choice. <laughs> like, like, you do realize that when I'm, like, weighing buying a new pair of shoes, I'm like, okay, but that's, like, three lunches at the food cart. Um, You know, like, it's – and it's so weird, the things as a poor person, like – you know you could be, in theory, like, you know, investing, save things, whatever, but, like, having a new pair of shoes seems like a better insurance policy than, you know, um, putting $50 away or something. You know what I mean? Like, it just seems like a, a right trade-off. But, yeah, I was like, you would never think that, though. Like, you're just lazy. <laughs> like, the other, you just gotta, like, press a button on Amazon, and you're not thinking, like, you're not thinking, you know, shoot, what could I have spent that money on? When I talk about being poor, I've seen how it makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. The last thing I want is to be a burden. Being poor makes up so much of my identity. And yet, I often feel forced to just pretend that I'm not. Just like Sarah Pearl. I think one of the biggest things that I struggle with at Yale is there's this uh, feeling of having to, um, of having to disguise your poverty, like not talk about it, um, which is, I think, a pressure that you feel everywhere. But it's impacted here because, and I've had people say this to me, it's like, if you got here, then it's not really a barrier to you. Um, I've literally had people say this, people very high up, people, like, I'm, I'm shocked to hear this come out of their mouth. I think Yale's definitely made me wealthier with opportunities, networks, and knowledge, but it definitely hasn't changed the fact that I'm still part of its 2% from the bottom 20% of the income ladder. Even President Solvay acknowledged that. Yale is such a great equalizer most of the time 
that when it comes to money, people may feel guilty if they think they have more than someone else, or embarrassed if they have less. I've done well not to feel embarrassed about my lack of wealth. It didn't stop me from getting here. I shouldn't have to feel any shame for it. I also know that I'll be better off now than I was before, and so does Leland. Poverty is something that it's invisible, you know, and it's something that you carried with you before Yale. I would say that, you know, I would consider myself not poor anymore. Yes, I'm still happy, you know, my, I'm, my, my finances are still poor, I'm still, you know, but, but in terms of being at Yale, the position that I'm in, I think we're gonna do fine. I think all, you know, as long as you, you keep, you know, you can use the experiences of, that's my, that's my kind of philosophy is that I shouldn't, I don't, I'll never worry about the future like I used to worry in, uh, in high school and middle school, where I always thought, God, what's gonna, you know, what's gonna happen? It was always a, I've always worried about what's to come because everything is always, always so fragile. Everything goes always, oh, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, that's a phrase that's thrown around all the time. And God, no one knows what that actually means. No, that, that was, it got in the presidential elections, you know, people talk about poverty and they say, God, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, I mean, it literally means when you run out of money entirely, when you don't have things, money saved up, you know, my mom, when she was sick, we used up savings that we should have for years entirely to pay for things and it goes to zero. When you're living by the moment, you have to take what you can get. You have to get out of life. It's a certain, it's a, it's a, a continuity in each moment. You have to live in the moment, you know, in, in the realest of terms. I try my hardest not to think about making money because the moment I do, I know I'm not making money. It's as if the only truth in life is that I need to make money. I try my best to stay hungry so I keep moving forward. But I always fear that I'll starve and act hazardously. My dad, a lot of times, you know, was in and is still in, you know, a vicious cycle of poverty. That's what hits a lot of these people. It's a cycle of poverty because it's the attitude towards it is self-defeating. Like you just said, I mean, you think about it and then you, you can't do anything else. You, what you get five dollars, you buy a beer with it to, to drown your sorrows, you know, and whatever to not be depressed. You know, this way of thinking is probably unhealthy, but I really don't want to say how little I have and then have people pity me. I know if I do, people just feel awkward around me. Like, they don't know how to associate with me. Like, somehow, I became different by just acknowledging myself. Here's Abdul, our senior. I don't know how to, like, say that I just don't have the money, because sometimes, like, there's so many things that require money here that people don't think about that it gets hard to say no every single time without feeling like you're just totally excluded from stuff. And so there were times where I had to like use money I didn't have. Um, and like always like look at my bank account and be like, Oh wow, that's a negative number. Okay. That's another negative number. And like time and time again. And that's something that I blame kind of myself, but also the expectation of school. I came to Yale for all the opportunities, the programs to study abroad, the resources to learn how to dance, the access to research labs, more than all the new friendships that awaited. But again, somehow, it's as if my friends and I operate on different planes. People here don't seem to think that everything around them is as out of this world as Leland or I do. Yeah, just by virtue of what, what the place has to offer is that everything I experienced here is the first time that I've ever been able to experience it. Through Yale, I performed for the first time. I skied for the first time. Hell, I even traveled in a plane for the first time. All on a budget that has often made concessions so I could have the same life as my peers. My friend Raphael, my wonderful friend Raphael, uh, lives in the Dominican Republic and invited us over to his house for spring break my freshman year. Um, and uh, I was, you know, he invited us over and he, you know, he's well off and he actually paid for us to do basically everything there. We stayed with him 
at his you know various houses, Gull Villa and his house in the like in his house in the mountains, and it was crazy. And you know, how did I get there? I found a an eighty dollar ticket at like two a.m. that I bought five months in advance. You know, and uh, flying out, and it was like a one way. It was great. It was actually cheaper than going home for me to fly to the DR, which was crazy. Again, look, that's because I look for these opportunities. But um, so I, you know, that was the first time I'd ever left the country in my entire life. My freshman spring break trip to Costa Rica was one of many firsts. My first trip with friends. My first time leaving the country, save for Canada, and my first time on a plane. And then three months later, you know, I again I won a, the fellowship to be able to go and study Chinese in China, and to leave the country again was just God. It was overwhelming. I mean, it, you know, there are so many people at Yale who have since they were little traveled all around the place and gone you know this way and that way. And they just don't even, there's not, again, it's that idea of not having gratitude, not having value for certain experiences because you're so used to them. But at Yale, everything is, everything was new and everything was, because of that, you know, extremely valuable. So yeah, so going to China, I brought in my perspective still of being a low-income student, you know, and, and I, you know, every day I'd take the, I'd hop on the, the subway and I, you know, I'd go and talk to people in this, in the parks and throughout the city. Um, and I, I'd listen to them and I'd, I'd ask about their experiences. And, you know, there are poor people that I would talk to and, you know, I could ask them questions that a lot of my peers probably couldn't ask in, in certain ways. And, you know, and because of that, I, I got so much out of the experience that I would talk about going to China with people who also were there in the same trip as me or as an, other Chinese programs. And they totally didn't have that. They stayed indoors. They, they hung out with their Yale and Harvard friends or whatever the, the people were. And um, that was not the, you know, they didn't have the same experiences that I had because they didn't seek those opportunities. But for me, that was so overwhelming to be able to do that. Again, it was a sense of, you know, I, I'm not being fully grateful for the experience unless I take full advantage of it. Leland thinks a lot about gratitude. I do too. It makes every moment seem so magical. That isn't to say some days don't straight up suck. But Yale has allowed me to experience so much. I wanted to make every second count. But sometimes, the reality of my empty wallet can set in. Then, so does anxiety. But... I never had to worry about my security in the same way Sarah Pearl did. You know, a lot of kids at least have the option to go home. It's, you know, that once they find the plane ticket money um, is one thing. But if they find that, then they like, you know, have some kind of physical space. Since foster kids don't do that, um, what I, I'm responsible for the rent, you know, so like I paid for the rent for um, the month in between. Um, so that's like a lot, right? It's like $600 and then all the food for that time. So maybe like $800. Um, so it, it adds up, you know, um, maybe to like almost close to a grand um, of the time that you would spend like at other places. My parents call me constantly about coming home. I often can't afford to go back, so I often didn't outside the winter and summer breaks. However, I'm fortunate enough to have somewhere to go back to at all. That security is actually really hard and really scary to figure out. Um, and it's going to cost you no matter what. Say you have a f- great friend who's like, you know what, come stay with me you are still going to have to figure out a fare to get there. So that's going to be something. You know, you probably don't want to expect them to like pay for all of your meals and everything you're doing there. So that's money too. It might not seem like much, um, but, you know, they at least have that option of going home, you know, um, and that's not a small thing. Um, the physical security, the, the food security that comes from that. You're dealing with a kind of like temporary state of like homelessness that's like expensive to manage. It's never, it's never efficient to find some place to stay for a week or two, you know, um, be it a motel or something. Like it's just never going to be the most efficient thing is like, you know, just going back to a place where you can at least crash on a floor or a couch. 
The first time I returned to Yale after my freshman winter break, I put up a Facebook status saying, I'm back home. <laughs> my mom was reasonably upset at that. After some time, I thought my younger self had honeymoon goggles on. But now, I have a constantly changing opinion. I regularly can't see Yale as home because it's just so difficult to afford. Again, I'm just not talking about the cost of living, but the fact that I often can't keep up with my peers. How can home be somewhere where you don't easily fit in? Though, some days, I just think I live in a place with a bunch of rich siblings that just don't understand me. I know, angsty. I just know that I shouldn't have to live a different life because I'm from the bottom of the ladder. Honestly, I wish I could tell you how to talk about poverty, but I don't have the time to sit down to think about how I could explain it to you because I need to work so I can afford to think in the first place. Undergraduate Missions was produced in English 471 at Yale University. Special thanks to our professor, Mark Oppenheimer, and our audio gurus, Brian Paws and Phoebe Petrovic. Music you heard on this episode includes Drops of Water in the Ocean by Broke for Free and Hollow Grove by Josh Woodward, the song you're listening to right now. This episode also includes modified ambient sounds by Tim Kahn, Waveplay, and Josh Woodward. I would also like to thank YTV and the Yale Daily News for audio from the student rally and my family for helping me get here, and my friends for helping me get through here. To hear more episodes, check us out at uapodcast.com. If you have any questions or comments, shoot us an email at contact at uapodcast.com. Thanks for listening.